Okay, here we go. Verse 30 of Acts chapter 15. So, when they were sent off, and just so you know, they is Paul and Barnabas, and they're on their way back from Jerusalem now to Antioch, and they've got a couple of guys with them who we'll talk about in a moment. When they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over what? It's encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. All right. So there's a nice, important lesson about the purpose for why we're here today, wrapped up in that passage of Scripture. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Why can't you just find a recording of a church service and go and sit by yourself and just listen? Or, or why, why, why did this multitude assemble together? There's, we should back up a tiny bit and remind ourselves what's going on. As you know, Paul and Barnabas had gone to Jerusalem because there was this really potentially dangerous issue of theology, of doctrine that had risen in the and theology and doctrine are actually slightly different, but I would say this kind of core doctrinal view that in order to be saved, it wasn't enough to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You also needed to get circumcised and to begin to keep the law of Moses. Some people had come into the church teaching that. And of course, you know, the Apostle Paul wanted nothing to do with that. That has nothing to do with what the gospel is, right? So what they did was they went to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles and the leaders of the Jerusalem church to see a couple of things. One, did you send these people here to say this stuff? And number two, do you believe this stuff? And of course, what happened when they got to Jerusalem was, it was a tremendous time of rejoicing because the Jerusalem church, which was primarily Jewish, learned that all these Gentiles had believed the gospel, and in, through their faith in the gospel, they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit from God, God in them, and they had faith in their hearts, and there was joy, and their lives were changing, and they had received gifts, and Paul and Barnabas were able to do miracles among them, and it was all just kind of wonderful stuff. They had received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews did at Pentecost and, and, and all of the occasions thereafter when the gospel was being preached and people believed. And so there was this great reconciling of the gospel, if you will, a great confirmation that the gospel to the Jew was the same message as the gospel to the Gentile. And so they wrote this letter that they made reference to in verse 30, right? They delivered the letter. That's the letter in the verses immediately preceding the passage that I read. And just to summarize the letter, in that letter what they said was, look, these people came to Jerusalem to trouble you, all you people. We didn't send them. We gave them no commandment that they should go and teach that people, in addition to believing the gospel, also need to get circumcised and keep the law. We didn't tell them that. And so here's what needs to happen, is you need to stay right where you're at. Faith in Christ is totally, completely enough. But here's a few things that you want to do just to make sure you don't offend the sensitivities of any Jewish believers that might be among you in the Gentile churches. And they gave them a list of few things 
that, uh, you know, you can see they're eating things that had been strangled, eating food that had been offered to idols, which for a Gentile would be no big deal, but for a Jew would be a great offense because of their sensitivities to idolatry. The Gentile people came out of lifestyles where there were multiple gods and all sorts of statues and things to worship and everything else, like from that psalm that I read to you in the beginning of the service today. But of course, the Jew... Even the Jew that didn't believe the gospel at least came up in their synagogue understanding that there was one God, right? And it was not a God that you could see. It was not a God you made a statue and bowed down and worshipped or, you know, walked by, kissed it and all this other stuff that people do. It was, he was invisible. He lived in the heavens, right? And so all of the idolatry would be particularly offensive to the Jew and make them stumble. So for the sake of love, they were told, stay away from those things. But apart from that, They were given no commandments. It was affirmed and confirmed for all time that salvation came through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are the recipients of that today. We're the beneficiaries of what God did in all of that. All right? So, they go back to Antioch and they sent with them these guys. They sent with them... Uh, Judas and Silas. And, and most of you are, I'm sure, are aware of this, but in case you're not, that's not that Judas, all right? Not Judas Iscariot who committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus. This is a different Judas. And Silas would become someone very significant in Paul's life, as you'll see in the upcoming chapters of the narrative. But when they go back, what happens becomes, I believe, a really small little picture of why churches assemble. Why do we gather together? It doesn't exhaust the subject, of course. There's lots of other reasons why churches get together that aren't shown here. But I think one of the biggest and the most important is listed in all of this. So it says they go back to Antioch. Look at this gathering. It's described as a multitude. This is very large. The gospel had really taken off in that part of the world. Praise the Lord, right? And so they gather this multitude together and they deliver the letter, the letter that I just described. Now here's number one. Ready? Here's the number, number, three things here I want to show you. Number one, when they had read the letter, what happened? They rejoiced over what? They rejoiced over its encouragement. I believe, brothers and sisters, that one of the biggest things that happened, you notice that it does not say, it doesn't give you a lot of details about what was said. But when they read this letter, what did it cause? Joy and encouragement. One of the biggest reasons that, and not not just a joy and encouragement that comes like from, you know, uh, uh, the joy you might get like if you're a football fan and you go to a football game and your team wins. Not that kind of joy. But a depth of joy and a depth of encouragement that comes from the affirmation of your faith. What had just happened? What had just happened in the, the months leading up to all of this was that, and years really leading up to all this, was that this multitude of Christians had grown in Antioch because Jews and Gentiles had come to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and that he had died and that he had risen from the dead. They saw all these miraculous signs. They knew that God was at work with them. But then these other people came in teaching other stuff. So now they were all confused and everything else. But then they gathered together. And here came Paul and Barnabas, along with these other guys who were going to be witnesses that the letter was authentic, coming with them from Jerusalem. And they read the letter, and it caused joy, and it caused encouragement, because that gathering together, to hear all of that together, and then to speak to one another as as they were having fellowship together, affirmed and built up the fact that the gospel was right. They got it right. It was another gift from God. Just like God had confirmed that what was being preached was authentic by all the miracles that the apostles would do, here's another affirmation of the reality of what? Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and nothing else and no one else. There's no circumcision. There's no observance of Sabbaths. There's no observance of holidays. There's no sacraments. There's no catechisms. There's no religious ceremonies. There's no lists of laws to keep. There's no lists of commands. There's no lists of uh, uh, penitences you have to perform. Nothing like that. It is all about the accomplishment of Jesus in dying for our sins, receiving the full blow of the wrath of God against all sin when he died. All of God's justice and wrath was heaped upon Jesus when he died. And it is enough, brothers and sisters. I don't need now to perform this and do that and prove this and show myself that. No. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust in Him. And in fact, the more I live, the more I walk, the more I show to myself when I struggle and I battle. I never could prove anything to God. I could never justify myself before God. It is only by His grace. And it is only through faith. And when these guys came back, that multitude, that church assembled, and they they read that letter. And the result was joy and encouragement. We can't see what they said, but here's something that Paul wrote later. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. If you want to turn there, you can. But Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. I love, these are great affirming building verses. As you therefore, this is it right here. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Let me ask you a question, Christian, in the 21st century. If you're here and you've received Jesus Christ as Lord, how did you receive Him? Did you receive Him because of some religious ceremony? Did you receive Jesus because you performed some ritual act? Did you receive Jesus because... You did a complete inventory of your life and you figured that your good works are better than your evil works. Did you receive Jesus because all the people that you can find that are worse than you, you stack up better against them. And so those are the ones who go to hell, not me. Did you receive Jesus that way? No. All the ways that men try to justify themselves. No. The way that you receive Jesus is when you humble yourself You acknowledge that you can't prove yourself before God. You humble yourself. You acknowledge your sinfulness before God. And you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died for you and rose from the dead. And that you're saved by His grace. And then Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. Ready? Rooted and built up in Him. I love that. Rooted refers to what? A foundation being dug down. Built up refers to the opposite. Building it up. I mean, think of like, think of like building a building or think of like planting a vineyard or anything. It starts with digging down deep and then it grows upon the foundation. And the foundation is Christ and what grows up is the outworking of your walk and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, like you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses too. Or you need to accomplish this list of sacraments. Or you need to do good works as well. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. Any sort of philosophy or empty deceit. No. Beware lest anyone cheat you of what God by His grace gave you in Christ when Christ died for you. Amen? I don't know what you go to church looking for. I don't know what people go to church looking for. But a church is, look, this multitude that we're reading about, they were an assembly of people who had been touched by God and saved by God because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole purpose of their assembly was to go again and again and again and again and again to have that faith in Christ affirmed 
and built on as they learned more and more about the God who saved them. And so church becomes almost like, in part, a spiritual school where you go and you learn about the Lord and you learn about your faith and you learn about Him and you combine that with your own times of prayer and your own time of reading the Bible and you become Christians who are rooted and built up. Every Christian should be deepening the roots and edifying the finished product. Right? And that comes through the same way you received Him. Faith. Faith. The constant affirmation of the rightness of salvation only being by God's grace through faith angers Satan and builds Christians. Read on. Secondly. So verse 31. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas. Judas and Silas were the two guys that the Jerusalem church sent back with Paul and Barnabas. Why? Let me just explain it again to make sure you got it. Why did they send these two guys back? Well, God had plans in it because Silas was going to become a big part of Paul's ministry. But they were taking a letter back with them. Now... If they go back with this letter, who's to say that the false teachers in the Antioch church would just say, that's not authentic. You wrote, I mean, it's not like you can go on Facebook and check or, or call them or, you know, right? We're talking about 2,000 years ago. So, so they go back and they could be accused of having forged this document themselves to suit their own theological purposes. But Judas and Silas, we were told in the previous passage, were well-known leading men among the Jerusalem church. And so they came along to say, we've been sent by the apostles and by the elders of the Jerusalem church. And every word of this letter is true. And they were even named in the letter, right? So that's why they're there. But now, now we go beyond that and we're told something else about them. Verse 32 says, Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. Okay? So when we go and we assemble in the church, it's to have the gospel of grace through faith affirmed. But then it's also to receive strength. And how did they receive strength? They received strength when these two men who were prophets in the Jerusalem church had come down from Jerusalem and they spoke many words, it says. They stood up and they preached. What we're doing right now is one of the main reasons why we gather together. It's so together we can open the Bible and a person, here it usually happens to be me because we're not a multitude like this church that we're reading about is, but this multitudinous church had lots of men in it who would stand up and do this. But someone would stand up, open up Scripture, and read, and again, give them strength, give them strength, give them strength out of God's Word. Paul again wrote in another place in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. He said, for this reason, listen to this, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, ready? Listen, everyone, here's the point, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what good preaching does. When someone stands up and reads Scripture and points people to Christ, it's for the purpose of strengthening people in here. We don't gather churches for the sake of trying to build little businesses that have just little, just, just people constantly coming all the time who are like, 
thinking they're serving some religious duty. We're certainly not trying to entertain people. We're not just trying to give people some alternative to the world. We are trying to do the work that God himself is trying to do through us by preaching and teaching God's word to generate and stir up strength in the inner man. For the person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what the word of God yields in them. Right? And that's what they were doing in the church in Antioch when Judas and Silas came back. Judas and Silas didn't just come back and say, hey guys, see this letter? It's authentic. You see our names in it. You need to listen to everything. And then they just left. No, they were preachers. I said, okay, you guys are preachers. Preach. There's multitudes of people. So they stood up and they preached. And what was the result of it? Strength. They were strengthened through listening to preaching. And that's what preaching does. Listen. Good preaching. And I'm not talking about style. And honestly, it doesn't matter to me if people think what they think of my style or anything like that. But good preaching to the saints who love God, they recognize the Word of God, they hear the Word of God, they are moved by the Word of God, they are informed by the Word of God, and they are strengthened by the Word of God. People looking for anything else generally hate it and are bored by it. Because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Nor can he. In fact, they're foolishness to him, Scripture says. But the person who loves God comes, assembles, gathers, tunes in, if you will. Like some of you are online. Thank you. And they listen. And they hear his voice. They hear their faith in Christ affirmed. They hear an exhortation to share that faith with others. They hear of the importance of inviting other people in because they know it's the most significant thing in the world. And they are blessed. And they are encouraged. And they say amen and hallelujah. Maybe not with their mouths, but in their hearts. It wasn't when Judas and Silas came with the letter, oh, we have to listen to another sermon. No. They were strengthened by hearing words from these people. Because when the words that are spoken are words from God, words from the Scripture, and good exposition of Scripture, it works in the hearts and the minds of those who love God, and it yields strengthening. They're strengthened because their minds and their hearts are thirsty for it, and yearning for it. Amen? You bet. You betcha. Now, there's one more thing. So they came, they read the letter, it brought encouragement. Then Judas and Silas stood up, and they preached many words, and it, 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 it result, resulted in the strengthening of the brethren. Then after they had stayed there, verse 33 says, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So Judas is gone. However, Silas, it says, verse 34, stays around. And you'll see the importance of that in a minute. Now, verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so here's a third thing we've seen they're all, all three of them are really like, they're three words to describe basically the same thing. But it's the main reason why I believe that Christians need to come together and assemble and worship. Because you receive encouragement from God's Word, you receive strengthening from God's Word, and you receive teaching from God's Word. And while all three of those are related to one another, they're all slightly different things, aren't they? What is encouragement? Encouragement means you add courage to somebody. N, courage. You add courage to someone in order to continue to believe what it is that they believe. Right? Strengthening means that you're actually adding to what is inside of them. The inner man, it said in one of Paul's writings as I read. You're actually building up strength for them to be obedient and to be servants of the Lord and to be doers of His Word. 
And then here we're talking about teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching is the idea of just kind of giving out information and, and, and informing people of things that they need to hear and to learn. So they're all, they're all encompassed kind of in the same office, in the same act. But they're all things that are needful and are like the centerpiece of why Christians, why multitudes or even small groups like ours gather together. We need to constantly have our ears tuned to what it is that God is saying in his word and being taught. This act of teaching is so important. Well, there's a couple, two more passages of scripture to read to you. Uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church and he said, he himself, meaning the Lord, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, in other words, complete, perfect, grown up, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that happens all the time, right? You know what happens is people get bored, frankly, with the affirmation. People, it, it, it's, it's a sinister thing that Satan is able to do. But people are actually made bored hearing about the incredible thing that God did to save them. And it yields this, this insatiable appetite for hearing something new, like the Athenians had in Acts chapter 17, results in all sorts of strange things coming up within the realm of Christianity, things like prosperity gospel preaching and things like that. You know, you know to, to take people away from that which is the foundational teaching of the Christian faith. And they're just drawn from this movement to that movement. And then there's this outpouring of God and this new thing and this new thing over there. Listen, the gospel doesn't shift and change like the waves. It doesn't just blow around like the wind. The, the, the word of God and the doctrines of Christianity and the truth are a solid foundation that don't shift and don't move. What you and I believe and affirm about Jesus Christ and about Christianity should be exactly the same as what Christians in some far-off land 1,500 years ago did. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. That's why teaching is important, is to ground people and to inform them. And that's why Paul says God gave some to be evangelists and prophets and teachers and pastors, to build people up, to equip them for the work of the ministry. If, look, if you don't learn the Word of God, if you don't learn the Word of God and thereby learn God Himself and what God has done and what God is yet going to do and what God desires from his people, you're not equipped to serve him properly. And that's the whole point. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ to build it up. That's the role of teaching in the church. And guess what the source of teaching is? Scripture. All scripture. Nothing but scripture. You find a ministry that reduces the importance of scripture elevates anything else to the same level as the importance of Scripture, puts Scripture aside, is careless with Scripture, is irreverent towards Scripture, run. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then he went on from there to say this to Timothy. Listen to this. Ready? I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. That's coming, by the way. 
Preach the word. Preach the word. What's the word? All scripture. Preach the words of all scripture. And he tells them, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. That is patience and teaching. Right? You know, know, rebuke, teach, but be patient. Just as God was patient with you, you be patient with the people that you're teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. See, that's what happens. What God wants, which is careful teaching from His Word, patience exercised towards those who are listening, faithful commitment from those who are listening, gets replaced with the desires of men. Right? We don't want to hear that. We want this. We, want, we don't want more of that. We don't, people actually go, I've been a Christian for over 30 years, and I feel like I still need to read and study my Bible all the time. And I still learn new things all the time. And yet there are people, it seems to me, that aren't as built up in it as by God's grace I am, who seem like their attitude is they don't need to hear this stuff anymore. I've heard that before. How does that work? That's correct. It doesn't. Very good. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. Not listening anymore. And be turned aside to fables. What are fables? Stories that entertain. (laughs) That's what fables are. I don't want to hear this anymore. Tell me a good, fantastic story. But then you know what he says? But you... Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You got it? All right. So that's what you see when the church gathers together. They came together for encouragement, they came together for strengthening, and they came together for teaching. And it's from the scriptures that all of that happens and the result is the built is the rooting and the building up of Christians in their faith. Let's close in prayer, everybody. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time we've had here today. We thank you for your word. Thank you for all of your goodness to us. Help us, Lord, to be committed to what the assembly of your church is. Stirring each other up to love and good works. Worshiping and praising you but maybe above all, listening to your word. May we always be thrilled to hear recited to us again and again the glories of your great victory when you redeemed us from our sins by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Thank you for the affirmation of that in Scripture. Help us to grow more and more in the knowledge of you, in encouragement and in God. And it's all important and it's all critical. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all essential and critical. But this Pauline section of the New Testament so beautifully summarizes for us what you would call the Apostles' Doctrine. And if the Apostles' credibility and ministry is destroyed by first century false teachers operating on behalf of Satan, then maybe we don't have that. Can you turn in a few can you turn can you turn to a few Bible passages with me? Shake your head yes. Shake your head yes. Get your Bibles out, get them ready. Y'all at home too. All right, watching this. Get your Bibles out. I'm going to give you three elements of what I believe would be apostles doctrine. The apostles doctrine. I'll go through it fast if I can which I probably can't, but I'll make the effort, okay? Um, Number one, the Apostles' Doctrine affirms the theology of grace through faith. That's the heart of it right there. The Apostles' Doctrine also teaches and encourages us how we ought to walk in this life. 
And the Apostles' Doctrine points us ahead to what is yet to come. First Corinthians 15. Turn to First Corinthians 15, 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. See? Apostles' doctrine. Affirmation of the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. See? He was there. He had preached this to them. Now he's writing it to them to affirm it. That's what the apostles' doctrine is. In the written form. It's the affirmation of what they preached. Which also you received and in which you stand. We receive the gospel, we believe the gospel, and we stand in the gospel. We add nothing to it. We add nothing to it. It is enough. By which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. You believe and you continue to believe. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. That means they were still alive at the point Paul was writing this. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, that would be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, the chief elder of the Jerusalem church, the author of the book of James in the New Testament. Then by all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen also by me as by one born out of due time, which I referred to before. Right? That's in the apostles' doctrine, at the heart of it is the affirmation of the gospel. Jesus died, Jesus buried, was buried, and on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? And that's affirmed over and over and over. Ephesians chapter 2, go there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Everyone knows where Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 ends up, right? You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. But the path that it takes to get there is wonderful. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, the apostles' doctrine. He said, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The way we lived before we knew Christ was the way of death. The life that the world lives is the way of death because God's going to destroy it all. Before we knew Christ, we were dead. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan, who by God's sovereign design holds sway over the course of this fallen world. God is in control. But within the realm of God's control, he has permitted that Satan walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You see people disobeying the gospel, rejecting the gospel, walking in all manner of evil and sin. That's Satan at work. And then he includes us among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. See, conducting yourself in the lust of your flesh is a characteristic of your old life before you knew Christ. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just like the others. We were just like everyone else sinful in this world. But God, see, what changed us? ourselves, we woke up and realized the way we were living was wrong and we decided to change. We decided to clean up ourselves before God. Absolutely not. Impossible. This is the apostles' doctrine. 
God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Someone say amen. Amen. By grace you've been saved, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We are, in a sense, seated where Christ is seated, which is to say what? Just as Christ rose and ascended to heaven and will die never, ever, ever, ever more, same is true with you. If you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're seated, as it were, in the same place. Even though you've not fully realized what the ultimate result of our salvation is going to be, it's done. You're seated with Christ. Christ is seated. I'm seated with Him. There's still the working out of my life to get me through it and to bring me to be with Him. But it's done. Hallelujah! It's done! That He might, that he might in the ages to come, that's what's coming, show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You looking forward to that? We enjoy it now, but boy, what's coming? Whoo! For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. I love the words. We were dead. We've been made alive. And all the glory goes to God. We did nothing. We believed. And even that is not of ourselves. You hear that? We believed we can't even take credit for that. It's all Him. That all trust should be in Him and that all glory should go to Him. Him, Him, Him. Verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see? The Apostles' doctrine. The Apostles' doctrine. You were dead. You've been made alive. All the praise and glory and credit goes to Jesus. Now you live out the rest of your life doing good works which glorify Him. Not walking the way that you used to walk. You don't walk in all the same hypocrisy and dishonesty and and thievery and lust and immorality and wickedness and obscenity and violence. You don't walk in all of that stuff anymore. Now you walk in good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You don't walk in them because you're trying to justify yourself before God. That's done. That was done when Jesus died on the cross and when He brought you to faith and you believed, you're saved. Now what do you do with the rest of your life? You use it for the glory of God. You see? That's the apostles' doctrine. And if what happened to Paul in the first century didn't turn out the way that it did, maybe we don't get this. All praise to God. Yeah, we're getting it. Philippians 3, we were with the the youth and the young adults yesterday, spent a little time in Philippians 3, go there. This is more of the Apostles' Doctrine. Philippians 3 and verse 7, Paul, after saying, look, if anyone could justify himself, it would be me, because I was, uh, you know, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, zealous, persecuting the church, blah, 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 blah. But then he says, what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. In other words, compared to Christ, I'm willing to just write all of that off. That's Paul saying, everything that I was... Everything that men esteemed me for as a great religious man, forget about it. Write it off. All I want is Christ. That's the apostles' doctrine. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Ready? Here's the Apostles' Doctrine. Here's the theology. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
See? That's the apostles' doctrine. There is one righteousness that God accepts, and that is his own. Let me say that again. There is only one righteousness that God accepts, and that is his own. And that is given to you. That is imputed to you when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not self-righteousness, not self-achievement. Hallelujah. That's the Apostles' Doctrine. Secondly, we get encouragement to walk. Just stay right there in Philippians 3 and look at verse 12. Paul says he hasn't attained to this, this intimate, this perfection of walking with Jesus. He still battles and struggles like the rest of us. He says, not that I've attained, not that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Instruction on how we ought to live. He affirms the theology of grace through faith, and then he gives us encouragement in how we should walk. How should we walk? Striving in our relationship with God to grow, to serve, to grow, to serve. Not earning anything. We can't. Not pleasing Him in and of ourselves. We can't. But, but, but abiding in the vine. Abiding in Him. Pressing into Him. And look, day by day by day, I commit to leaving yesterday behind and I go forward with my eyes upward, with my heart upward, with the intentions and inclinations of my heart upward. I don't look, I don't walk through life with my spiritual eyes earthbound. I walk through life with my spiritual eyes heavenward. That's how you walk. Do you stumble and fall? Yes. Do you fall into sin sometimes? Yes. Do we get overtaken by trespasses? Yes. Confess your sins. Confess your faults to each other. Forgive one another just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And press onward with your eyes upward. That's how the Christian walks. We've been set free to walk that way. That's the liberty we have in Christ. We have been set free to walk that way. What a joyous existence that it is. Back to Galatians really quick. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Let me read this to you. Galatians 5, 1. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty in which Christ has made us free. Don't become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You've been set free from all the requirements of the law. Stand fast in that liberty. Now, does standing fast in that liberty mean that I can just go through my life and just do whatever I want? No. That liberty means that the penalty of the law has been lifted from me. So I'm not striving to prove myself to God anymore because I know that I can't. Christ satisfied what God requires. And through faith in Christ, I am reconciled to God. But that's not a liberty now to just satisfy all the lusts of my flesh. So I stand fast in the liberty, but what do I do with that liberty? Same chapter, look ahead at verse 13. Galatians 5 and 13, what's it say? You've been called to liberty. You, brethren, have been called to liberty. But don't use it. Don't use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But ready? Here's the Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine. Through love, serve one another. And then he quotes from the Old Testament and says, look at this, look at this great statement. All of the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, why would you do that? If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. 
So you've got this liberty where you're free from the law, but don't use that liberty to just satisfy your lusts and just bite and devour one another. Use your liberty to serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. That's the apostles' doctrine. Affirm the gospel of Christ, teaching how we ought to live, which, by the way, was the great commission that Jesus gave, wasn't it? He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a reference to the evangelistic activity of preaching the gospel and baptizing those who believe and teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Teach them. Teach them to observe. Teach them to live. Teach them to walk in the ways that I have commanded you. And he promises to be with us to the end of the age. So the Apostles' Doctrine, number one, an affirmation of the theology of grace through faith. Number two, encouragement in how we ought to walk. And then lastly, just one more verse to read for you. Pointing to what is yet to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then we'll end with this. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Very familiar ground for Christians who take their faith and their Bibles seriously. If this is not familiar ground for you, make it. Verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to whether, what he has done, whether good or bad. The Apostles' Doctrine points people ahead to the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the realization of our salvation, and the fact that we, and the fact that we stand to account for what we have done in our lives since we believed. And so... Looking ahead, we make it our aim to please Him in everything that we do. The Apostles' Doctrine, there's the affirmation of the theology of grace through faith. There's the encouragement to walk worthy of Him. And there is the looking ahead to what is coming. Jesus is going to appear. Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to bring the kingdom of God to this earth and every other kingdom will fall and the one good and righteous kingdom will be established. And he will rule for a thousand years and you and I give an account to him for what we have done in our lives since we have believed. And then we serve with him, serving him forever. That's what's coming. And death and sickness and sin will never touch us again. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for the things that we could learn from your word today. Thank you, Lord God, for preserving the writings and the doctrine of the new covenant, the apostles' doctrine, that we might study it and know it. Help us, Lord God, to believe nothing other than your grace. Help us to believe in nothing other than what Jesus did for us. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy of you and be fully pleasing to you. And help us to be mindful that you will return and we will account for how we've lived. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.